was telling Wesley as he was looking for my Bible and my sermon manuscript, I said I had some margin notes, and so I appreciate him printing a new copy of my sermon, um, but I'm comforted by the fact that as Jesus in the upper room discourse said, hey, don't worry, it'll be told what you need to say, and uh, we know that the Spirit helps us, and so we 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 speak and we listen as those who are completely dependent on the Spirit to bring to our remembrance what we need to illumine His Word. And so, actually, I would love if you've got in your um, in your bulletin if it says heavenly bread, I I wish you would change that to say heavenly manna, foretaste of true bread. You might be wondering where the word manna comes from, and it's a word play in the Hebrew from, normally ma is the question what, the interrogative like, what time is it? But in this case, it's amended to be man, so it's man who, who being he, she, or it. So man who, man who becomes, as word play, manna, manna, the heavenly bread that God rains down on his people. You know, so much of life, if you think about it, is a foretaste. Um, a foretaste of what will come really in the future. And much of our experience, if you think about it, points forward. Increasingly, hot days tell you that summer is coming. And some of you know, if you've looked at the 10-day forecast, it's about to get really, really hot. Even though summer begins properly June 21st, I think by the 13th, 14th, and 15th of June, you'll think it's already arrived. Maybe a sliver of steak. You know, when you take a steak right off the grill and you just take a little edge off, you cut that and you stick that in your mouth right off the grill, you get a foretaste of just how awesome dinner will be. Maybe a quick call to a friend that you haven't seen in a while. They're gonna be in town and you're trying to connect about meeting together, eating, catching up. It's a foretaste of just how much you'll enjoy their company. And even though you, you know what that's like with a good friend? It's like a good friend talk, meeting and talking with an old friend is like putting on a pair of really comfortable blue jeans. Just a couple of minutes, you feel like, it just feels like yesterday since we talked. And so that phone call is like a foretaste. And when we gather together as the people and saints of God, those whose right to a new and restored relationship to God was secured through the blood of the cross, we have a little glimpse. We have this growing foretaste of an eternity where together, unmixed, without alloy, nothing there, pure gold, we will enjoy the presence and praise of our Savior, but without the spoiling, ruining effect of sin, where we might say, as we've seen in the book of Revelation, where we can sing freely, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, he reigns. That's foretaste. Even this morning, even as we're singing these songs, we have a sense of foretaste. But you know, sometimes, rather than looking ahead, rather than capitalizing on the foretaste of what's in front of us, we're willing actually to trade 
redeemed freedom for the illusion of security in bondage. And we'll see that early in this part of Exodus 16, where the children of Israel want to look back, and they romanticize, they idealize what happened behind them, not forgetting that they're in fact no longer a in bondage people, but free. And it brings us to our big idea, and that's this. Our God is living bread, and our God is rest for his children. And so as we walk through these 36 verses in seven quick divisions, where we're going to end up is what we hear in Spanish, and some of you know this, where Jesus says, yo soy el pan de vida, I am the bread of life. Not just bread, but he says, I am the true bread, the true bread that is completely and fully satisfying. Well, I want to break this down for us. These seven divisions, seven sections from Exodus 16. First in verses one through three, if you're taking notes, let's just call it what's happening, the present situation. Then secondly, in verses four through eight, Yahweh's proposal to reveal himself. Then verses nine through 12, a third division is Yahweh's promise to provide. Yahweh's promise to provide. Fourthly, Yahweh's promised food. In verses 13 through 21, the promised food. Fifth, verses 22 through 26, a call to rest. And then in verses 27 to 30, the gift of rest. And then finally in in verses 31 through 36, the seventh division, the seventh section, what we'll call the testimony of manna. And that's when they asked, what is it? That was manhu. Manhu then, as wordplay, becomes manna, this heavenly bread, and that's how It was known, that's what it was called. Now, let's begin first and think about this presenting situation in verses one through three. Now, some of you, I think, could be tempted to grumble this morning that we're gonna speak again about grumbling. Several weeks ago, we noted that when the children of, when the children of Israel were pushed, this is the end of chapter 15, verses 22 through 27, when Moses made them go out into the wilderness, two million strong as a throng, as an assembly, they found no water, and then when they found it, it was not sweet, but it was bitter. And the description was, it was simply that they grumbled against Moses. And I think rather than be too hard on Israel, let's just understand that if you were a mama with a baby in your arms and you'd gone three days without water, you're probably uber stressed. You're scared yourself of dying of thirst, but maybe at some point your breast milk stops and you're thinking, my baby is going to die too. So rather be too hard, let's just understand how catastrophic that appeared. But the Lord, in showing Moses a simple log, and not through any medicinal power, he takes that log and throws it in the water, and the children of of Israel are able there 
to drink and God saves them, he saves their lives. And there he takes advantage of this at the end of 15 to simply say, here's a rule and a statute. You as my covenant people, you're my people. And I'm your God, and that doesn't mean you're scot-free. You were designed, your ears were designed to hear my voice, all right? And you are to do what is right in my eyes, to give ear to my commandments and keep all my statutes. And he says, in that way you'll find me, Jehovah Rophi. I'll be the one that will save you from the diseases that I afflicted the Egyptians. And so please, if you're tempted this morning to grumble, then I'm speaking about grumbling again. I forgive you if you begin to grumble. But I would say it's as though between the end of Exodus 15 and 16, God is is heaping up these words about grumble, grumbling, grumbled, as though to get our situation. Well, what's the presenting situation? It was thirst at the end of 15. Now, it's hunger. And if some of you join in the day of prayer and fasting and you fast during lunch, I know that if you're here tonight at five o'clock, as John is preaching, some of you will begin to feel hunger. But, and so it's, this is not something to which you can't relate, but I think there's an intensity here. And I want you to see that as they were out there in that wilderness, the wilderness of sin, which we say is stark, Think desert, think very little vegetation, very little water, and we read that they grumbled, not surprising, because grumbling is like cancer. It tends to grow. At first it's this, and then it's this. At first it was Moses at the end of Exodus 15, and then it's Moses and who? Aaron. It's like weeds in your yard in June. If you don't kill them, they will come on. Your grass might be dead, but the weeds will still be thriving. And I don't want us to grumble as we look at this and we see the presenting situation. Please resist the temptation to tune me out. And to realize that as God piles up between these occasions, Israel's grumbling. As we think about heavenly manna and a foretaste of true bread, the presenting situation was their hunger and their response to it. And you'll see, yet there's another, there's another rationale. And the first time, as we saw several weeks ago, It's as though as one assembly, the people of Israel looked at Moses and said, we are dying of thirst, you brought us out here, now fix it. But now this time, look, as they grumble against Moses and Aaron, look at the, just the ludicrousness of what they say. They say, as the whole people are there, They say this, it's a wish that they would have died and that they would have died, that God would have killed them back in Egypt in alien land under an alien power 
And right there, after God has miraculously freed them through these 10 signs, and through the Passover as the 10th and final and effective plague, as God has rescued them as they pass through the Red Sea, only, only to destroy all of Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts, now they look back and they wistfully think, here we are, hunger pangs, oh God, oh Moses, we wish God would have killed us back in the land of Egypt by his own hand because we had it so good. How many of you ever do that where you think, wow, it's so good back then? You romanticize, you idealize when you forget, actually, now you're a freed people on your way to the promised land. Then you were groaning, the end of Exodus 2, you were groaning, your cries were coming up in all the miserableness of your sin, in your bondage, its darkness, you were under in your sin, you're under Pharaoh's thumb, just like the non-Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're dead in your trespasses and sin, and you're held captive by Satan to do his will, apart from him bringing in by his grace through the Spirit, through the gospel, through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He brings you to the other side. He brings you out of your own Egypt into the life of God in the Spirit. And there's this presenting situation. They idealize their pre-delivered life. What was the second thing I want us to see in that is Yahweh's proposal to reveal himself. Bread simply is a test. And look, he doesn't say, like you'll find in verse four here, uh, you'll find bread on the ground. He says, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. The gift and the generosity of God here was designed to be a test for the people of Israel. Now, I was in Nairobi when it snowed here this much like on January the 16th. Y'all remember that? And Cheryl sent me a video and I love watching that video and seeing the snow and hearing the sleet and seeing that rain down. But kids, just for a moment, can you imagine just going outside and popcorn or your favorite cereal is falling from the sky and covering the ground? Just imagine that. And the Lord says, I promise, I'm, he, he, this is how he reveals himself. He says, oh, you're hungry and even though you're grumbling, he doesn't address this yet, he says to Moses here, get ready, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And he's saying this to Moses, but by extension he means for the people of Israel. And he says such that it's gonna be there every day. Now how many days did Israel find bread on the ground in meeting, how many days? Well, you'd have to take your phone and do 40 years times 365. It's something like, I'm guessing, someone want to help me? 14,400 days, I'm just guessing. Maybe someone can look it up, all right. He says, I'm going to provide for you and bless the people of Israel that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And that connects to the end of 15, saying, 
hey, this is the call. You're to diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. And I want to pause here and just, I want us to just pause and apply this very practically. I was talking to someone about this Friday. How will you come to faith in Christ? How will you grow in faith in Christ? Let's think about it three ways, very simply. In God's word, he speaks to us. In the preaching of God's word, that is God's means, however foolish and silly it seems, that we might come to faith and grow in faith. And then when we pray to God, as God speaks to us through his word, secondly, as we pray, as we pray, we speak to God, all right? And he invites us to pour out our hearts to him. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy, hey, I say, all types of prayer. Let there be breath, supplication, thanksgivings, intercessions. Pray, open your heart, open your mouth. And then there's a third way. It's like this. Not only does God speak to us through his word, not only do we speak to him through prayer, but we're not deaf mutes with one another. I need you to speak the gospel to me. You need me to speak the gospel to you. She needs you to speak the gospel to her. He needs him to speak the gospel to him. To speak the word. Even as Paul says in the end of Ephesians 5. That don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Right. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is how faith will come. This is how faith will grow. And what's the whole point of God as he reveals himself here in these verses? What's the point that he's making? He's saying, I am doing this. I'm doing this that the people might know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You see that in verse six. At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And that, three or four chapters later, at the beginning of Exodus 20, will be the prologue for the Ten Commandments, to the, for the two tablets of stone, to say, okay, you, my covenant people, Known by my covenant name, Yahweh. Known by my covenant love, Kesed. As I give these words to you, these ten words that mainly look negative and prohibitive in nature, I want you to know that I who give them to you am the one who rescued you out of the land of Egypt. Not, I simply didn't give you a new passport. I rescued you. I saved you. And you think, why do you find eight times in the first 12 verses of Exodus 16 some form of grumble, grumbled or grumbling? And this is a very Hebrew way of communicating. Moses is emphasizing Israel's response to their situation. It was one of faithless ingratitude. They're known as grumbling Eight times we find that. 
And yet God is known as the one who desires to continually and purposefully reveal himself to his people. And I want you to see here that God's provision is not normally joined to our passivity. Sometimes, yes, bread just drops out of heaven, but I want you to know that they had to gather it up. Look what it says. He says, it says, it will be twice as much on that sixth day as they gather daily. And now remember that there in verse five. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. God provides for them, but that providing is not divorced from normal means. He reigns it from heaven, but they go out and walk the land and gather it. And then there's this word here, it's a tease, that on the sixth day, it says when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Now this imperfect could be, you could interpret it as a command, and they are to gather twice as much. But let's look at it more as a predictive future, as this is what will happen. And now this brings us to the third part of our exposition, and that's God's promise to Aaron, to, to provide. It says, as we look, then Moses said to Aaron, as he delegates this communication, he says, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. He's heard your grumbling. Now, I want to confess to you, to be very transparent, that when I preached the end of Exodus 15 a few weeks ago, and I encouraged kids, you to go home and ask mom and dad, do I grumble? And spouses to look at each other, or friends to say, do you think I grumble? Am I a habitual grumbler? That I began to discover, to discover in the days after that, as Cheryl and I were talking about this, that I was like Paul, that when, he's, when he heard the commandment, you shall not covet, that as I began to reflect on my words and the attitude of my heart, I began to see what I had not seen before. A pattern of negative, ungrateful, faithless grumbling. A denial of the wisdom, a denial of the goodness, a denial of the sovereignty of God. A denial of a firm grasp and apprehension of his faithfulness, the God of Lamentations 3, and in denial, a lack of grasping, of clenching my arms around his promises that he who promised is faithful, and he will do it. And that's why someone has summed up the Old Testament by this one word, remember, is that we are to remember what God has done and that his promise to provide in the future is always, it's, it's, it's a tower that's built on a poured foundation of his past faithfulness. Now, I want to move on and look briefly at this promised food. Meat in the evening, bread in the morning. You see this in verses 13 through 21. Quail, Right? Quail just coming up and just dying, falling, covering, littering the ground. Littering the ground. And then in the morning, this 
manna, this thing that the people asked in verse 15, what is it? And Moses says there in verse 15, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now, I don't know about you, but if you told me that for the next four weeks, my entire diet was roasted quail and gathered manna, I'd probably be a bit unhappy. Does anyone agree? Does anyone feel similarly, okay? A little variety in the diet is enjoyable. But look what Moses says. This is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And he says, gather each of it as much as you can eat. And just like looking back to Pastor Jamie's sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, don't be worrying about tomorrow. Don't gather for tomorrow. Today what? He's saying, it's not to say that we don't plan like the ant in Proverbs 6, to store it for tomorrow. But our working, or even our provision for tomorrow, is not to be an anxious, self-dependent, it all depends on me, frenetic gathering to provide for tomorrow rather than thinking, hey, here's enough, let's gather, let's fill up a half a gallon, two quarts in Omer with this fine, flaky stuff on the ground, and that's enough. But as we look at this promised food, that meat in the evening, the bread in the morning, I want you to know how perfectly those parallel the meat pots, the, the meat pots expression at the end of verse three. It says, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, okay, meat and bread, and now in 13 through 20, 21, there's meat in the form of quail, there's bread in the form of manna. And you'll notice the distinction. Some gathered, some, some ga- they said they gathered some more, some less. It says when they measured it, it really didn't matter. The one, the one who gathered a bunch had nothing left over. The one who gathered a little did not lack. But here's the word from Moses to them. Don't leave any of it over till the morning. But they didn't listen. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not surprised. It says they did not listen to Moses. And that's descriptive of us. The very thing that God's calling us to do, to listen to the voice, to his voice, to do what's right in his eyes, they forget very quickly. Why, have you asked yourself, why was it they didn't listen to Moses? Have you thought about this? What's behind hoarding? What's behind hoarding? Behind hoarding, and I'm not talking so much about your house being cluttered with possessions where you think that everything has value. I may need that paper one day. I can't throw it out. I gotta keep it. But we're talking about this hoarding to ourselves, like not trusting, in this case, that God has said, don't keep it. Because essentially what he's saying on that sixth day, I'm gonna give you enough. Each day I'm gonna give you enough and tomorrow it will be there. Let's apply this briefly. Is your life, is your life 
typified, is it marked by anxiety for tomorrow? Who will love me? What will I eat? What will I drink? Will I have enough money? Will I get the respect that I think I'm owed? Will my husband love me? Will my wife respect me? Will my friends remember my birthday? All these things. Are you marked by an anxiety that looks like trying to hoard what God's give you, given you and thinking, I better hoard it because I can't trust that God is good for tomorrow. That's what was going on here with the people of Israel. Let's move on. Let's look not just at God's promised food, but look, look at this call to rest. It says, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. Think of a half a gallon and a half a gallon or a gallon together. As you can see, all the leaders of the congregation came. They reported this to Moses, and he said, look, here's what the Lord has commanded. And we get a foretaste, because if you think about it, within this passage in Exodus 16, there's really four words. Kids, if mom and dad say, what are the key words about this message? I want to give you four to remember. Grumbling, grumbling, manna, okay, grumbling, Manna, Sabbath, and rest. Grumbling, manna, Sabbath, and rest. And there's this call to rest. The Lord says, hey, look, tomorrow, the seventh day, the day after the sixth day where you've gathered twice of what you need, it's a day of solemn rest. So do all your preparation now, like a Saturday night. Bake what you'll bake, boil what you'll boil. And whatever's left over that's uneaten or unprepared, if you leave it till morning, unlike those first five days, it will be good. It won't rot. It won't be infested with bugs. And we read in verse 4, 24 says, so they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink and there were no worms in it. And then Moses says in this call to rest, you'll notice in this day of rest, there's eating. He says today is a Sabbath, a Shabbat. That's the idea of seventh, all right? We call a ordinal number, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh to Yahweh. He says, today you will not find it in the field. You'll not find either the quail in the evening or the manna in the morning. You'll not find it. And so here we have this foretaste, this looking ahead in anticipation of that fourth commandment, that last commandment that will be on the first tablet of stone at Sinai. And that is the idea that God owns time. 
and that he who made you and me and the world and all that it is, is in it, the birds of the heavens, the animals upon the land, the fish of the sea, who rested upon the completion of his labor says, you can rest too. I made you in my image and you as a fellow image bearer may rest. And that rest then, as we'll see from Genesis from Genesis 1 and 2, and then coming forward to here, and then we'll see, we'll, in a number of weeks, we'll be in Exodus 20, to look at that lengthy, elaborated commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's right here, and this is a gift. It's a call to rest. It's a gift to rest. Now, some of you are thinking, maybe as in Matthew 12, that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. But notice how it's expressed here in verse 25. He says, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the fields. Jesus' as true bread is most satisfying, I would suggest, when we as a body acknowledge our creaturely dependence by resting and yielding one day, giving one day unto the Lord, particularly, specially, as the Lord's day. To set other things aside, to especially focus on the things of God, the worship of God, the people of God, the cause of God, and the word of God. I want you to think about the gift of rest just momentarily and then we'll finish. Look how Moses says this in verse 29. And so at this point you might say, as God has given this word, six days you shall gather and even double on the sixth. And Moses is, Moses is hearing this. This is the Lord speaking beginning in verse 28, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. And the idea of God giving is it's a gift. And the gift is for the benefit of the recipient. And so moms and dads, one of the things in terms of applying this is thinking how the way we speak, the way we plan, the way we pray, the way we govern our homes and our families is to shepherd the hearts of our children so that they do not think that the Lord's day is a burden, but rather is a what? A blessing. I want to ask, let's think about how do we do that? Are you scrambling around on Sundays because you stayed up too late on Saturday night? And you're trying to think, what are we going to eat? What am I going to wear? And thinking about maybe even reading ahead the practical ways of realizing that the Lord's day, the Sabbath is a gift as much as it, was, is, it is for us as much as it was for Israel. It is he who gives bread. It's Paul who says in 1 Corinthians 10, 3, our fathers, they ate spiritual bread. This wasn't simply manna. This wasn't simply bread from heaven. It was spiritual bread that was a foretaste a foretaste of the Son who is true bread. Lastly, I want to see in those final verses the testimony of manna. 
The people of Israel called the name of this heavenly bread that God rained down manna. There's a word play again on that question. What is this? And man who then became in time manna. I've been trying to think what this is like. Coriander seed, right? To say, like, coriander, I think, is what we call, in Chinese, it's shansai. It's also known as, uh, what's another word for coriander? Do we have another word? Cilantro, okay. I've never eaten cilantro seeds. It says this was like that. There's like wafers made with honey. I keep thinking of graham crackers when I read this. And Moses says, this is what the Lord commanded. What he commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You keep this so you'll not forget. Take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, is what he says. Have you ever asked yourself, do you remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant? And we read about this in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4. God, for the people of Israel, gave them within the Ark of the Covenant three perpetual reminders that he was their covenant God, he was their covenant, they were his covenant people, and that their years were crowned with his steadfast love, his kesed. Three things. Number one, a golden urn holding the manna. Number two, Aaron's staff that was budded. And then thirdly, the tablets of the covenant. Do you think about this? The urn, the manna that rained down from heaven and fed the, the children of Israel for 40 years. Aaron's staff that demonstrated the miraculous hand of God in signs and wonders. And then the tablets of the covenant, even the law, the very description of godliness for his people. It's later as we look ahead and we connect this to the larger story of scripture. It's the psalmist that says in Psalm 105, it says they asked, I love, I love how this is remembered, verse 40 of Psalm 105, they asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. And it reminds me like the waiter that comes and they set your, your, they set your plate right next to you like that very nicely. The server. No, they grumbled and they grumbled and they grumbled. And God anyway brought quail to them. He gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He's so merciful, praise God. It ought to be our daily hallelujah that he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. And then in Matthew 11, it's the Lord Jesus that says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father, or no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says this, this invitation. 
and it will become a paradox of the Christian life. He says, come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. And here's the paradox. Take my yoke upon me? You mean that thing that's hitched to oxen to pull an implement to plow the ground? He says, take my yoke upon you. And oh, those of you who hate school, learn, (laughs) learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you, with my yoke upon you, and you, learning at my feet as my disciple, will find rest for your soul that is pictured in that seventh day of rest. And then he says this, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And to finish this sermon, we'll land on John 6. And some of you who speak Spanish, you know when you hear the words, yo soy el pan de vida, that the son is saying, I am the bread of life. One of those definitive seven words by the son of God featured by the gospel writer John, who says near the end of his gospel, I'm writing everything I'm writing, everything I'm telling you in my gospel is for this one purpose, that you might believe in the Son of God, and having believed, you might find life in his name. Come, come and eat. Come and eat of the true bread. The Jews were so right. Their fathers ate man in the wilderness. And Jesus says in John 6, hey, don't labor for the food that perishes. Labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And then they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And for those of you who get confused or you feel like, whoa, faith and works, belief and deeds, how does all this work? He says, here's the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. And they said, what do you do? What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then they present exhibit A. Like, you're not going to impress us, Jesus. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, let heaven itself be the witness, I say to you, it was not May Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you. Now watch, as they're thinking about the man in the wilderness. It is my Father who gives you, if you'll believe me, the true bread 
from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then he says this, and we'll close. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know, he goes on to say this, and I want you to hear this. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. You who are hungry, you come to Christ, and there is something about the grip of Christ that can never be broken. Because that eternal covenant where their father said, I will give you a people for your own possession from the nations of the world. And the son said in an Isaiah-like spirit, here am I, send me. God says, deal. They're yours. And the son says, I'm ready to go to come and die. And in that covenant, when you and I come to the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith, to the true, satisfying bread, we, you, will never, ever go hungry. You will never be lost in him. God, help us to look to the true bread.